0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is another uh, exciting and technologically challenged episode of the Remnant Podcast. Through the miracle of landline technology, I am on the phone with my National Review colleague and friend and the only libertarian roundhead atheist I know, Charlie Cook. Charlie, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. So is libertarian roundhead atheist, that's, that's all fair, right?
1: Totally. Absolutely fair. But you could also throw in maybe wig. Yeah, or... wig, although not wig historian as we discussed last time. I don't I don't think right. that we're destined for sunlit uplands with no effort. Yeah,
0: I think anyway, I think I was trying to think of how many different adjectives apply cuz you're you kind of you borrow from a lot of different files. So, where to begin? Well, you're basically the only person I know who is more principally horrified by Trump's declaration of emergency. So uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you start off by just walking us through your top 14 objections?
1: <laughs> well, the, the primary objection that I have uh, is that whatever he is doing is farcical, given that the fight we have been watching for two months and more, the fight that caused the shutdown... The fight in which his White House and the new Democratic majority in the House have been engaged for weeks seems to have been for nothing i mean if 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 a president can just end a dispute with the legislative branch by doing what it was that he was, in the first instance, asking the legislative branch permission to do, then we don't have a legislative branch and we don't have separation of powers. That's my objection. Now, it gets complicated. It gets complicated because there are a number of arguments against what he's doing and there are a number of different ways in which presidents overstep their bounds. I think people often misunderstand this objection. This is not solely a statutory question in that, even if Trump were correct in saying that if he squints and if his lawyers squint, they can see some way of using existing law to justify this. Even if he could do that, I would be against it because, as I said, if you have been asking permission if you've been complaining that Nancy Pelosi will not give you permission, if you've been politicking off of the absence of permission forthcoming, it's ridiculous to say, well, I could do it anyway, so what? Um, So it's not merely a statutory question. It's also a question of of constitutional propriety um, and prudence. Uh, I think the other misconception... That needs to be cleared up here, and it's one that came up during the Obama years: is that there's lots of different sorts of executive action, and not all of them are illegitimate. So it is beyond doubt that a president can, for example, reorganize his executive branch or issue instructions to his executive branch without having to ask anyone else. For permission. Providing, of course, there's no underlying statute that that takes away that power. This is not a numerical question. One of the one of the stupidest talking points I saw during the Obama administration was Well, Obama has only issued this number of executive orders compared right. to George W. Bush who did Well, look, the question is whether they're legal and whether they're appropriate. If Obama had issued one executive order during his entire tenure, but it was to nuke Los Angeles the fact that president bush had issued 150 executive orders changing the way in which the department of homeland security reports to the fbi's database you know it would be totally irrelevant this is this is not a numerical question it's a question of substance so the best way to look at this i think is as a problem irrespective of the the fine detail in that it is I think a statutory problem, I think it is one. I think what what the president has done here is to abuse statutes that were not passed for this purpose. But it is also a problem because, and leaving aside what I said earlier about presidents not being, uh, uh, it not being a, a great idea for them to turn around, having been arguing for something and say, well, they could do it. Anyway, it's also a problem because if what he's doing is legal, if you take the best possible uh, approach to this, then we have a big problem in this country, namely that Congress has delegated its powers, has given the president this, this latitude, has, has, has signed off on what are effectively enabling acts, and enabling acts that it seems to me have no limits. This is not the first president to do this and it won't be the last but i can really find no silver lining here i suppose is what i'm getting at because i don't yeah. think this is statutorily legal i statutorily legal i don't think that even if it is it should be and i think that even if it should be i think it is wrong for presidents to exit negotiations by behaving like kings
0: yeah i mean it's it's it's, it's it reminds me of you know that famous line from Michael Kinsley, you know, this, the, the scandal isn't about what's illegal, but what's legal. It's, it's more horrifying in a certain sense if Trump can do this in a legal sense, right? Because that means that this is how far we've come, how far we've strayed from the way the system was supposed to be set up. And, you know, it's going to be extremely frustrating if some judges start ruling in his favor to hear – all of these, you know, sort of the pro-Trump media crowd saying, "See that what you made too big a deal about this?" When in reality, this is like this is a, a century-old story, and the fact that we've gotten this far—I mean, it's, it's it, you know, not to go all British on you, but if if that's what the law says, then the law is an ass, right? Well, <laughs> um, you know,
1: yeah, and and I, I think so. Another way of looking at this, perhaps, and this is a libertarian way of looking at the world, I accept, but there is a difference in the way that libertarians, classical liberals, even many old school liberals, there's a difference between the way that we see the law and the way that we see morality, in that we don't believe that you can pass a law to prevent every immoral act or every undesirable act. When it comes to the legal question, we will be very obsessed with the details. We want laws to be uh, written well. We want them to be clear. Uh, We want their original meaning, original public meaning to be maintained. And we want them to be understandable. We want people who are bound by them to comprehend them. And so, yeah, if someone can point to a provision in the law that permits a given behavior, or at least it doesn't prohibit a given behavior. In the narrow legal question, we will often say, fine. And if Trump can do that here, I don't want judges stepping in to pretend otherwise, if that is the case. But that is in no way related to what behavior is moral or virtuous or useful in a In a free society and so even if as you say judges uphold his his actions not simply out of this terrible traditional deference to presidents whenever they utter the words national security but because there is a good statutory argument because congress has actually delegated this power that won't tell us anything about whether what Trump has done is good for the American order, is good for the maintenance of separation of powers, is good for American liberty. And, you know, I would note that conservatives who objected to Barack Obama's Caesarism did not do so purely on narrow statutory grounds. They said this is not what presidents are supposed to do, especially when Congress has explicitly gone on the record, as it did time and time and time again under Obama, and said no. No. I mean, this is, this is the, the, to me, is the crucial point. And it comes back to our last conversation about parliaments and kings. It is not a mystery what the Democratic House thinks of the wall. You might think they're wrong. You might think they're right. You may, like me, not especially care about the wall. But the House has made itself clear. It does not want to fund the wall. It didn't want to give him the money. It didn't want $5 billion in wall funding, which is its prerogative, if, if the president, knowing that, still goes ahead and does it, we have a problem. Much as we did under Obama in 2013-14, it was not a mystery what the Republican House thought of the DREAM Act. It declined to pass it over and over again. And Obama said, you know what, having said, incidentally, I'm not an emperor, I'm not a king he turned around and said, I found this way, if you look at prosecutorial discretion, and then you if you bring in the red light, and I put my bifocals, I just the answer is no, you have to take Congress at its word, we're not dealing here with some provision from a century ago that we're not quite sure about. And I think that, you know, the fact that we live in a world in which people say, Oh, he's doing that, is he and then we move on is is astonishing and would be astonishing to the architects of the glorious revolution and be astonishing to the architects of the constitution as well
0: yeah i i i am so fed, frustrated and fed up with mitch mcconnell ted cruz and lindsey graham who i often you know defend against from different quarters for all sorts of things for all sorts of charges but lindsey graham basically you know like a month ago said that He's going to do the wall. He's going to declare an emergency. And every Republican needs to support him on this or we're not going to support you. Basically, you know, throwing away all of his credibility about whatever he's ever said about checks and balances and the need to, you know, this is a guy who prided himself on being a maverick and breaking with his party on things. Ted Cruz, the number of soundbites of him calling Obama lawless and an outrageous on, on for the, his executive orders is just astounding. And Mitch McConnell, who keeps getting close to being, like, my favorite Republican, because um, at least he's an institutionalist. He's, like, one of the only guy, or seemed to be, one of the only guys left who actually just wanted to stay in his lane. But then he goes along with this thing and says he's going to support it. My understanding is that he felt he had to, because otherwise Trump was going to shut down the government again. But okay, so start, make him shut down the government again. I mean, this is... It just and, and I just don't know, you know, this is my standard question that I always ask is what can the next Democratic president do that people who go along with everything that Trump does and celebrate everything that Trump does, what's the, what's the thing that the next Democratic president can do that won't make you look like a hypocrite when you criticize it? And this is a huge one, right? I mean, either you're for checks and balances, either you're for the constitutional order, either for, you're for the idea that the president cannot legislate. And, you know, and cannot spend money that Congress didn't allow. Or you're not. And it shouldn't have to have anything to do with Republican or Democrat.
1: Right. But, but don't you think that what you've just said is the key? Because you said either you're for it or you're not. One of the criticisms that I get on this, and I'm sure you do as well, and you probably more than me because you're more um, prolific in your writing at the moment, is, well, you are useless, Jonah, You are useless, Charlie, because if it were up to you, we wouldn't get, insert whatever it is that they want here. The assumption being that it is more important to me and to you to get what we want than to see the Constitution being respected. But what I want is for the Constitution to be respected. Now, there are, of course, some exceptions to that. I am strongly in favor of the rule of law and for the upholding of constitutional norms. Clearly... If in a fantasy world, the Constitution sanctioned or called for a Holocaust or slavery, of course, at that point, it would have to go. And I would be more interested in outcomes. But in 95% of real world cases in America as it actually exists, what I want is for the law to be followed and the rules to be respected and government to be not only kept in its place but to operate according to the guidebook so that I can predict which is of course one of the reasons we have a constitution and limited government how people with bayonets are going to behave towards me and how the other side politically is going to behave to me toward me in the future and I think what's been deeply alarming about this is that it's not it's not just Ted Cruz and and, and McConnell and Lindsey Graham, who are behaving like partisan hacks. But the people on the other side, many of them, most of them, are not even pretending that they care about institutional prerogatives. And Chris Murphy didn't say, this is outrageous, I was sent here as a senator from the state of Connecticut to exercise the powers that the Constitution grants that body and I will defend them to the hilt. He said... Well, I can't wait till I'm in some sort of position of executive authority, and I can do all the things I've always wanted to do with gun control. What kind of system is that? I mean, ultimately, that boils down to Trump's behaving like Hitler, and I can't wait to copy him.
0: <laughs> no, so I, that's exactly see, right.
1: <laughs> so you see it—you see it falling down. You expect it from the party in power, right? Which is a problem because because the Madisonian system is predicated upon the assumption that the party in power will be more concerned by its institution than by the executive with which it shares some goals. That clearly doesn't happen. But to see it now so brazenly from the House, which is run by Democrats, uh, and from Senate Democrats too, fills me with dread, to be honest with you, because I can't see how we're going to avoid a tit-for-tat Process that lasts decades. Uh, this was always the fear when Obama did it. Republicans said, Well, what if we do it? And they did. They just did. Uh, so, yeah, of it, course- seems to
0: be, it seems to be the best analogy is to Harry Reid nuking the getting rid of the filibuster on judges, uh, doing the nuclear option. Because whenever you do the tit, so to speak, the tat always has to be the tit plus. X Right. It always has to be just a little bit more. It's the ratchet effect. And so Harry Reid does it. McConnell warns him not to do it. He does it anyway. Then McConnell goes a little one step further and does it for Supreme Court justices, too. And so now the Democrats, at least, you know, there's a certain honesty about the Democrats. They do not care about procedural or constitutional norms in these regards. And they're admitting it as such. But, you know, it, it's sort of like the point you make on um, the Me Too stuff that – and the the Justin Fairfax and, and Ralph Northam stuff about how Democrats are trying to impose a set of rules on society. And they're not the rules I want. They're not the rules you want. But they're the ones imposing them. So at the very least, if they're trying to impose them, they have to try and live up to them more than we do. And it's it's similar with all of this. Is like, you know, Republicans are the ones – you know, Ted Cruz – talks a lot about the Constitution. And he, for him to go along with this, sort of analogous to some left-winger turning a blind eye to, you know, Bill Clinton's infidelity or whatever, because it's one of our team. If we're going to call ourselves the party of the Constitution, that means you're you you have to live with certain inconveniences <laughs> that the Constitution imposes, particularly when Donald Trump... Goes out there and says, "I don't have to do this, right?" I mean, it just—it's—it's it's, it's appalling to me that so many people feel like they just have to not along with whatever he's doing. And it's kind of bizarre when you think about it. Why didn't Trump just say, "Look, I'm going to take a full twenty-five billion from someplace else and really build the wall?" I mean, if you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound, right? If it's lawless and it's unconstitutional, why is he limiting himself?
1: Right. And, and that, that, again, just comes back to the, the dynamic here that is so baffling to me and so infuriating, which is, hey, please, can I have the money to do this thing? No. Please, can I have the money to do this thing? No. I'm so angry with you. You won't give me the money to do this thing. That's correct. Goes to a rally. You know, Nancy Pelosi won't give me the money to do this thing. Boo. Government stays shut down. Government reopens. I really, really need the money to do this thing. No. I really, really need the money to do this thing. No. All right. Well, I'm just going to go do that thing. I never needed the money to do that thing. Who who in their right mind believes that? I mean, who <laughs> who I'm sorry, who thinks I this is this is this is again where how politics makes people stupid. I mean, un, under Obama, who really believed? I mean, genuinely down to their core stand up in the last scene of the crucible believed that Barack Obama had changed his mind on the underlying legal question. That The guy who sat in front of immigration activists over and over again and said, I've had a look at this, I just can't do it. I'm not an emperor, I'm not a king, I'm not a dictator. There is no way for me to do it. You have to get a new Congress before this is going to happen. The law is clear. The statute is in stone. I cannot do... Who actually believes... That he and his legal team and his party thought genuinely that they had found a way to do it that, that was uh, consonant with, with the Constitution and the underlying statute. I, I, I've never ever believed for a single second. that, And I don't believe it with Trump. I don't believe that he believes this. I don't believe the people around him believe it. I don't believe his party believes it he He didn't believe it about gay marriage either right i mean that's a more obvious
0: you you can't believe that gay marriage is wrong and a sin against god and all these kinds of things that barack obama said in 2008 no one believed him on that and then he just changed his mind when he thought it was okay to change his mind you know
1: right but i mean at least at least in in that sense you're dealing with uh, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm in favour of gay marriage, but I think the Obergefell you know, I understand was a, that was right. an abomination. But at least the people who defended Obergefell and the people who made the, such as it was, intellectual case for it have an extremely expansive view of the provisions that were used to affect that change. At least they have what, what I think is incoherent and destructive, uh, but at least they have a, you know, a, a routine, reflexive, living constitution, right? Mindset. At least they think that the Fourteenth Amendment and the Ninth Amendment contain all these unenumerated rights that come out of the ether at various points and reflect public will and evolve with the mood, and you know. But but no one with a in two thousand thirteen. I mean, Obama did not sit in front of that crowd, that famous clip, and say. Look, I'm not a dictator, I'm not an emperor, but you know in a couple of years, the statute might look a little bit different right <laughs> i mean or or I think you know it's look, you've just got to wait a, a bit because it's a it's a living statue, and it will soon grow up and go away to college, and then really would you know we've got the whole house to ourselves i mean it 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 was just such a brazen, cynical turnabout, and Trump has done the same thing here. I, I just don't believe the people who say, oh, actually, I it uh, makes total sense. And again, if the argument is, and as Obama said with with Syria, although he ultimately declined to go in, if the argument is, well, it's nice to have congressional approval, it's nice to make this permanent, uh, it's nice to get advice and, and you know, dot the i's and cross the t's but ultimately i can do whatever i want anyway then we then we don't have a congress and whether that's because congress has in fact passed a series of enabling acts that have rendered it pointless or whether that's because presidents now know they can get away with pretending statutes say what they don't doesn't really matter the end result is the same
0: yeah so i did this npr hit this morning and um they wanted me to respond to these polls that show that large majorities of Democrats and independents don't think there's an emergency at the border. They also don't uh, like the emergency declaration. But large, really large majorities of Republicans do think there's emergency and they do support the emergency declaration. And they're like, they asked me to make sense of it all and it seems to me, you just tell me if you think I'm wrong about this, it, it feels to me very much like during the Iraq war where there were a lot of Republicans who still supported Bush and still supported the war and thought the war was going better than the press was telling them because they hated Democrats, they hated the, sort of the, what, the, what the lefty anti-war people were saying and doing and how they were treating a wartime president, and they liked George W. Bush, but maybe they... And so the, their, their responses to poll, pollsters was more of a protest and an act of solidarity than an actual reflection of what they believe. And it seems to me that like that's the motivated reasoning that we're in. I, I I find it hard to believe. I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that eighty nine percent of America of Republicans actually believe in all of the the constituent parts of all of this. That there is the emergency, as Trump describes it. That uh, the the declaration is necessary. But that's sort of and I, I and at the same time, I also don't believe that every single Democrat out there is actually morally and existentially opposed to 50 more miles of fencing on the border either, right? But that's where we are. This is a purely a sort of a symbolic... Yeah, the whole thing's uh,
1: symbolic. Allegorical thing symbolic. where we're invested in it that way, right? We spend $5 billion in, I think, 12 minutes in the US. I'm not saying we shouldn't be careful with our resources. We should, but this was not really about spending five billion dollars. Right. It was a proxy fight for conflicting worldviews over the broad question of immigration and, and, indeed, and the broad question of Donald Trump. Right. I, I
0: think it's because I, I think the immigration question is actually secondary at this point. I mean, like our friend Mark Krikorian, you know, virtually every single serious immigration restrictionist type, you know, Ryan, you know, Mark Krikorian, Rich would gladly trade the wall for, you know, visa reform and E-Verify. Um, the wall now is simply, I don't want to get ace of spades panties in a bunch again because he's the guy who first made this argument, but it's, uh, it's a MacGuffin, right? It's just Trump is the hero and the, uh, the wall is the thing that Trump has decided he has to do. I think that was a wrong calculation. I think there were all sorts of other things that he could have done that and just said, yeah, well, you know, I, I was using the wall as a bargaining chip to get these other great things that I've done. Look at all the wonderful things I've done. And his base would have forgiven him for it. But he kept listening to Ann Coulter. He kept saying, This is my no new taxes pledge. And that's how he got to this position that he's in.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. But I also think that the emergencification of politics is is increasing not decreasing and i don't think that's limited to trump or to republicans you and i i think are similar in this in that the second someone especially a president says emergency the hairs go up on the back of our necks right it, it is the refuge of the overly ambitious and it is so so rare that there is an actual Emergency, especially an actual emergency that requires the president to bypass the legislature or to do extra legal or extra constitutional things. But we have a great number of emergency declarations still in force. And our entire politics at the moment is conducted in the language of the emergency and the threat, such that. It's quite odd when you take a walk outside (laughs) and look around. I'm not just talking about taking a walk in nice areas. I'm not just talking about taking a walk in New York City. I travel a lot. You travel a lot. I mean, almost anywhere. There are problems in America. There are poor people. We do have illegal immigrants. Uh, It is true that some of our cities have too much crime. It is true that too many people are murdered. Somebody but, on
0: Twitter pointed out yesterday that a guy took his pants off on, a, on an Air France flight and was walking <laughs> around in his boxers. There are real problems out there. And
1: that was the pilot. <laughs> but, but we're not in an emergency in any sphere of our public life. We're not uh, – we are, are overcommitted abroad and, and I lament enormously that we have soldiers in seven countries, some of whom are dying and we don't talk about it in Congress. But we are not in an emergency like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. We're not facing a threat like Hitler. We're not in economic dire straits. And the fact that there are people who are suffering does not change that. We are not in the midst of a gun violence emergency. In fact, there are fewer people being killed by guns than have been killed by guns for 30 years. Still too high. But emergency means that on the chart, there's a spike. And we're, we're not in one. And we're not in one at the border. There is no spike in crossings. There's not. I, I really strongly dislike illegal immigration. I, I, I find it offensive, not because I went through the process, that's sort of question begging, really, because if you're for open borders, which I'm not at all, but if you are, then that doesn't convince you because you don't think people should go through the process. But I'm against it because I think countries get to decide who, who joins them. And also because I think that if we're going to have laws, we should enforce them. Uh, and also because I think there are good reasons to limit and control immigration, substantively. Um, and I think we had too many people who came, came in illegally. And I think that Reagan's deal didn't really work because it was never enforced. And I think that for a long time, there was probably not enough attention paid to illegal immigration, and including by Republicans and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. But I also think that to suggest that we are at present in, a, in an emergency uh, you know a different state at the border that justifies bending the rules in the way that the Trump administration is now doing is ridiculous and and you know leaving aside the question of whether a democrat is going to turn around in a few years and say well Donald Trump did whatever so I'm going to do something I want to do it's just not healthy that this is how we talk about everything because no you know, I we agree do. That entirely I
0: mean, I mean there's a you know the, I mean we don't have to go over my moral equivalent of war thing again, but, you know, the the the, the reason why, you know, Randolph Bourne said war is the health of the state is that the state gets everyone to drop their procedural objections to the state getting more power when there is a sense of emergency. And so people who love using the state are in power. They, they – if they don't have an emergency, they want to create one or they – or they're just like the kind of person who – if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, they see emergencies everywhere because it's motivated reasoning. And I think, that's just, I think the problem is going to get vastly worse. But I, I, look, I agree. The, the, there is a crisis at the border. It's, sort of, it's a humanitarian crisis. And that doesn't mean we should let all those people in because if you let all those people in, you're going to get more of a humanitarian crisis because the word is going to get back to the people in their home countries that they're letting anybody who shows up at the border in. So it's a, it's a tough moral quandary. But to listen to Trump, it you know the stuff about how they're bringing crime and disease and all of that. Yeah, at the margins that's happening, but it's it's not at crisis levels compared to even if the baseline is just a few years ago. And the willingness to go along with that kind of rhetoric, I think, is deeply, deeply corrupting, and it's going to get us. You know, it, everything everything is going to get worse before it gets better. Well, and I don't I think you
1: it. can blame people. For thinking there are all sorts of emergencies raging across the country, because they, they, most people don't live on the border, and most people don't know the people Elizabeth Warren is talking about when she says, you know, that we have an economic emergency. And yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a very very big country, and if you hear this constantly, it's it's not it's not that odd that people believe it. I mean, there was a poll the other day that showed. I, you know, most America. I think it was like eighty-eight percent or something of Americans believe that gun violence has got significantly worse in the last twenty years. Right, but the opposite is this extraordinary improvement in in an extraordinary reduction. But I mean, of course, people believe that because that's all they're told on the press.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little analogous to environmentalism and climate change. People think that climate change means environmentalism and vice versa, but the environment in the United States has gotten unbelievably better in the last 50 years. There are, you know, there are more trees in North America in the United States now than there were 100 years ago. Uh, the water is vastly cleaner. Uh, the air is vastly cleaner than it was at almost any other time in american history since the you know the major industry came here and but we're constantly fed this crisis about climate change which look i think there's more to climate change than a lot of my friends on the right do but you tell kids that you know our actual environment is better and healthier than it's ever been our food is cleaner and safer our water is cleaner and safer our air is cleaner and safer they think you're nuts because that's not what they've been told, you know, and the media love is sort of addicted to all this sort of crisis mongering as well, because that's the way you get eyeballs, particularly in a fractured media climate where you care more about having a sort of sticky 5 percent of the audience than a responsible 50 percent of the audience. I want to just because it occurred to me, you know, when Nancy Pelosi says it's a national crisis about guns and maybe we'll do something about that as much as I think what Trump is doing is bad and sets a terrible precedent, am I right for thinking that it's, it, it's a much heavier lift constitutionally um, and statutorily to go after the guns as a national with a presidential declaration of emergency than building a wall on the southern border, right?
1: Right, right, for a number of reasons. And we should leave aside the politics, but the politics also are important here because if, if you want to rile up the other side, <laughs> then you say I'm going after the guns without uh, without any statutory permission you you can you can find the answer to your question, Jonah, by looking at what President Obama promised he was going to do in right. his final year in office and then what he actually did. I'm half joking when I say this, but I think Obama was trying to convince people almost, that he was going to be acting beyond his power, that he was taking extraordinary measures. I think he hoped to give off the impression of emergency action while doing nothing. And the reason he did nothing was because the gun laws in the United States are quite clearly written. There is not much latitude for action absent statutory change so you can promise that you will instruct the various departments that have been tasked with enforcing the laws to do so in a smarter way or to do so more emphatically you can try to place new items around the edges on the list of prohibited items uh, although that stuff is is subject to the Administrative Procedure Act, so it tends to die because people who know a lot more about it than you point out why those items weren't on there in the first place. But you can't really do much more than that. I mean, one of the things that, that Chris Murphy said, and again, obviously I'm no fan of, of Chris Murphy's. I, I think he's an appalling person. But I am nevertheless sad that he didn't take the moment to defend his branch and instead went down the uh, you know into into sort of fantasy dictatorship mode but what Chris Murphy promised was you know look next time we have a democratic president uh, maybe they'll declare that there's a gun violence emergency and unilaterally institute universal background checks so called and an assault weapons ban so called you can't do that. You can't raid a, a different set of funds. to. You, know, you can't look at another law and say this might apply here. The, the federal statute that became the Brady Bill provides for federal oversight of sales conducted through licensed firearms dealers, but not for sales outside of that rubric there's nothing you could do about that if you're president likewise we have a list in the united states of sorts of firearms that are you know not allowed to be imported or transferred or sold there are weapons and types of weapons that are on that list but it is exhaustive you can't say well i think that now, there is one caveat to this. And of course, this is where our politics is just so messed up. And that is that the president who in the last 20 years has acted the most ultra on guns, has acted the most aggressively outside of the statute, is Donald Trump. I have no great brief for bump stocks. I don't like it when gun legislation is passed because immediately the anti-Second Amendment crowd moves on to the next thing. But if the bump stock had never been invented, it would not affect me in any way. But a bump stock, like it or loathe it, is not in any way an automatic weapon, does not convert a semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon, and does not fall under the statutory definition of automatic weapon or automatic weapon conversions. How do I know that? Because Barack Obama looked at the law... Obsessively hoping he could find a way of acting on bump stocks and concluded that he couldn't because everyone has looked at the law and come to the same conclusion except Trump and Matt Whitaker who said, you know what, that's that's automatic weapon conversion. We're going to ban that. And that, that is going to go into effect after the Administrative Procedure Act's waiting period. So I suppose, yeah, there are a few little things that a president could do if they're willing to break the law, which the Trump administration did. And I hope, again, independently of the merits of the decision, I hope a court strikes this down just on statutory grounds. But again, I mean, I don't think that Chris Murphy's ambitions for American gun regulation are limited to things like bump stocks which are a, uh, a toy essentially that only a few hobbyists ever bother with
0: all right so it's changing gears because i don't want to keep you forever despite how euphonious and mellifluous your voice is we had a uh, uh daniel hannon on uh recently and uh, we failed to ask him a bunch of questions that we wanted to ask him about about but i know you're not english anymore in a legal sense but you're our in-house English guy. First of all, what sounds weirder to the English ear—the American accent or the Australian accent?
1: Oh, that's a great question. the The Australian accent does, I think, although it shouldn't, because the Australian accent really comes from Cockney,
0: right? Because you sent you all your criminals there.
1: Absolutely. you You have to you have to factor in though that. American culture is so ubiquitous in Britain that I almost didn't notice American accents growing up because they were half of the accents on television and most of the accents in music and at award shows and educational videos I'd watch at school. Whereas Australia is, I've been to Australia and I like it, but it's a long, long way away and its culture has almost no purchase in Britain at all.
0: So, an Australian guy I know, he claims that Australians are sort of like the Texans of the British Empire. They have very similar attitudes and behaviors and norms as Texans, and there's this weird solidarity or fellow feeling between them. I have, I have no idea if this is true or not. It may be something that a lot of Australians believe and not a lot of Texans have ever put any thought into. <laughs> but do you think, like, say, 100 years ago, before Hollywood dominated so much of, of English culture... Do you think that the Australian accent would sound more familiar and closer to English, the English accent, than
1: the American accent does? Probably 100 years ago, but not 200 or 250 years ago for the American accent. Obviously, Australia wasn't Australia then. Because the the American accent in many parts of the country still sounded quite British. Right. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I think, had an accent that was largely... Equivalent to the the West Country of England now, so maybe a hundred years ago, because there was a great divergence a divergence it should be said that was the product mostly of changes on the British side, not the American. The other thing that happened was that um, many of the English accents. Uh, that had thrived and been protected within discrete regions of the country began to be replaced with accents such as mine. Mostly, I have what is known as a received pronunciation accent. It was an accent that was invented. It's It's not... I mean, I suppose you could say all accents are invented. They all come from somewhere. But it was an accent that was explicitly and deliberately adopted by wealthier Englishmen who, having made their fortunes in places like Manchester or Liverpool or Birmingham during the early to mid-19th century, started to migrate to London, to the centres of power, to the court, to, to Parliament, and didn't want people to know where they and more likely their children were from. Because huh. people look down on people from other parts of the country, and especially people in trade. So you could reinvent yourself in England as as a lord, this or if, even if you didn't have a title, if you just had an enormous house. Having been in, you know, cotton shipping, and one of the ways that you would do that was to adopt this this received pronunciation, and then later on, it became an important, flat, easy to understand accent. During the British Empire, and at the beginning of broadcasting, and then with, then with the BBC, I'm I'm hugely oversimplifying this, but the but so is, the, so is received pronunciation uh, synonymous with BBC English, yes, it is, and and it's it's still it's still extraordinary that if you go to England, most people don't speak like that, but pretty much everyone in movies does, pretty much everyone on the radio does and in the theatre. And I would say the vast majority of English people who speak out loud and are heard speaking out loud in the United States do. So by the time you get to 100 years ago, Britain's accents are changing quite dramatically, and America's accents have changed quite dramatically too. And so you have a real a real gap, which, which also culminated in, in language. I think Bill Bryson said that the point at which american english and english english were furthest apart it was about 1930 and now huh. they've come back together because the world has got smaller and we share movies and music and books and tv and the internet yeah I, I i
0: got just because you might have triggered some hayekians out there when you said i suppose that all accents you know are invented somewhere or whatever this is one of like the core points of Hayek is that language, at least, is a, one of the great examples of an entirely human-created, artificial thing that was completely unplanned. And so your example of this received pronunciation is a little different, I guess, um, because it kind of does seem like there was a little planning involved. But, But language is one of those great examples of a spontaneous order, you know, creation that – Nobody is actually running the show. I mean, the French try, but they don't succeed. And language just is 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 a is a human creation without human planners behind it. Um, and I just thought I should get that out there. All right, so I have one uh, last question for you, which we really regret not asking Daniel Henning. Can you speak in an American accent?
1: Not really. No. <laughs> no. My Do you ever try? Can. Uh, no, but like, I, like you when you go to, i know
0: they at Starbucks they never they never pronounce your uh, they never write your name correctly. Have you ever tried to like say Charlie in a in an American accent to see if that would work?
1: No, but I'm going to do that now. I'll probably, but it, my cut will say Sharon or Edward or something on the device. I should just say on the Hayek point—that's a, that's a fascinating point you make because that is of course true. I don't mean it was invented from from scratch. It was really the, it was the accent that people had in, in Southern England, which was where all the money and prestige was. It, right. it was just invented in the sense that in the 19th century, people started adopting it when they would never otherwise have spoken like that or wanted to speak like that. And then it became formalized to the extent that people in private schools and so on were given elocution lessons so that they too had that accent. But of course it, it. It came from the ether originally. Yeah, no,
0: it's 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 you know it's very analogous to New York City. Um, I grew up in Manhattan, and people often will ask me, how come you don't have a New York accent? And it's that people from Manhattan tend not to have New York accents. You have to be from the outer boroughs to have, you know... I mean, there are people from Manhattan who have them, but you usually find out that they their parents are from Queens or the Bronx or Staten Island or something like that, and... Manhattan is so full of transients or just people from other parts of the world who move there. And I think there's a similar sort of pressure to lose your, you know, your bridge and tunnel accent um, when you go to Manhattan. So my dad was from the Bronx, but he never really had. You could could pick up a, a Bronx accent from him every now and then with certain words. Like you could always, one of the test words for New Yorkers is reservoir. It's kind of, it's a classic kind of shibboleth. Because a lot of New Yorkers will lose the R. And it's sort of like certain Southerners, when they pronounce, like when you listen to Newt Gingrich pronounce Washington, he puts an R in there, Washington. And there are these little sort of shibboleth kind of things that will come out. But for the most part, you know, I mean, you lived in Manhattan or you worked in Manhattan. Very few Manhattanites have that classic sort of, you know, you know 1940s cab driver accent because you kind of there's a lot of pressure on you to lose it it's sort of like the movie working girl
1: well absolutely absolutely but and there is there is one there is one strong argument i think for the homogenization of of accents and and that is intelligibility i mean my mother is from the west country of england where they speak uh, well, you see, this this is where the English class system is so fascinating. What I was about to say was where they speak like farmers, which, of course, is utterly nonsensical because there are farmers in Yorkshire and Scotland and uh, Birmingham too. But the stereotypical farmer in England ha- in in movies and, and plays has this direction like that, coming from the West Country, going to go home and have a beer. And yeah. and so, you know, people think, oh, my God. And, but her her parents had it much stronger then uh, she does. Hers is gone now, really. Uh, but her extended family, she couldn't understand when when she used to go back. Whereas no one is going to come out of a play at the Royal Shakespeare Company and say, I have no idea what they were saying. And equally, I think in New York, I've I've never been in a conversation with anyone, really, who I thought, I don't know what you're talking about. Whereas... Yeah. Occasionally, here in the South, in North Florida, and I love Southern accents. I I, I think they are just fantastic. But occasionally, I do meet people, and it takes me a couple of takes because they have such a strong Southern twang. So I suppose there is an argument for that, even if it's sad to lose the the accents that for that sort of city based homogenization.
0: Do you think in 1850 the Southern accent would sound more recognizable? To English, the English ear than the northern accent.
1: I actually don't know a great deal about that, but I'm I'm told that in the early South they sounded more like Southern Englishmen. Yeah, but I.
0: No, I, I would love to do a whole episode of this just on accents and get someone in here who really knows this stuff. It's Maybe related some in some
1: ways to the to the Albion Seed narrative, right. because right. of course people took their accents with them. And the strongest, I mean, the strongest parts of the uh, pro revolutionary sentiment do track really well with with the areas of England that were most strongly in favour of Parliament. One of them was the West Country. So it's no real surprise when you hear that Thomas Jefferson had what effectively was a West Country accent, because those people were still voting. I say those people, I'm from that place. Those people were still voting old school liberal. You know, not not the new Liberal Democrats in England, not, not that the, the Liberal Party's track towards socialism, but old school Gladstonian liberal into the seventies and eighties. Hmm. Um it is it That's is still strong. It's still strong there. And of course they were the people who who in in large part made the revolution as well. Does it
0: bother you that all the um that every single Hollywood Nazi has a British accent?
1: No, I quite like that, actually. Not because not I in any way want to be a Nazi, but because the implication is that the accent sounds evil and sophisticated, I suppose. I mean, it, 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 it carries, I guess it carries a certain <laughs> uh, Well, I mean, look, I, mean,
0: I can't be the first person to tell you that you sound evil and sophisticated.
1: So. <laughs> no, I, um, I get that all the time on Twitter. That's why I log in. Um, no, I, 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 I quite like the fact that, that we're used as the bad guys. Um, it, it, it must mean that we sound we sound intimidating. Um, yeah, you keep telling yourself that. <laughs> um,
0: anyway, you Charlie, it. thank you so much for coming on. really appreciate it. That and I uh, hope to have you back again soon.
1: All right, I'll talk to you soon.
0: All right, thanks, man. All right, uh, so... Charlie hasn't left the building because he was doing this by remote. I hope this sounded okay. We were doing it by phone. I uh, just want to do a little uh, house cleaning and a little various and sundry stuff with Jack here. Jack, you could not actually hear what we were saying, but you agreed with half of it. Uh, yeah,
2: and my uh, my I couldn't use my robot lip-reading skills because he wasn't here.
0: Yeah. Um, so first of all, we should just give a quick plug for the National Review Institute's uh, 2019 Ideas Summit. It's going to be at the Mandarin Hotel in Washington, D.C. on March 28 and 29. It's a biennial conference that features a powerful and diverse lineup of speakers, including many of your favorite National Review writers, um, representing the very best the conservative movement has to offer. Uh, the 2019 theme is The Case for the American Experiment, with a focus on American exceptionalism and the country's resilience and economic recovery. Uh, For more information and to register, please visit www.nrinstitute.org. Space is limited, so reserve your seat today. Hope to see you in Washington this spring. Although I'm going to be in Dallas and have to rush back for my thing there, so I might miss some of it. But um, I will compensate by drinking more than I normally would. Um, That'll be hard. (laughs) um, So, oh, and also I want to say I am... Beyond ecstatic and delighted, um, I don't know how many remnant listeners are responsible for helping out, but my episode of um, Russ Roberts's Econ Talk was the listener favorite um, for last year. Uh, basically, one in four listeners, uh, as Russ put it, uh, who did the survey put me in their top five, and I got the most votes, so I'm in the number one spot beating out a lot of really – Fantastic competition. Um, so I'm very grateful for that. It's very flattering. And, um, we'll have it in the show notes if you want to actually listen to that episode where we talk about my book. And as listeners know, I am a huge Russ Roberts fanboy. I think he does a great job. And we actually had him on here for a two part, um, Remnant podcast, which we'll hopefully can link to as well in the show notes. Jack, what else do we have? You finished God Emperor of Dune? We're not going to do a whole Dune thing right now, but I you, did. You yeah. did? You satisfied?
2: Yeah, I did. I am. Um, but I really don't feel like this is a good place to stop if I wanted to stop.
0: So you're gonna go on to chap your house and all those other ones?
2: I'm not sure yet. Yeah. Uh like it's just it it's it's a very satisfying ending point. Okay. And there was a lot more contemporary relevance to it too. It's
0: yeah, no, you sent me those quotes about Hayek and uh, well, that not about Hayek, but very Hayek-y. I mean, we don't know. Or, that
2: is true. Leto the Second has access to all of mankind's memories. Could have been accessing the uh,
0: the Hayek and the um and the Mansur Olson yeah. parts of his memories. It's entirely, it's entirely possible that in this fictional other planet and universe where a giant omniscient worm was accessing. Friedrich Hayek's Memories. Yeah.
2: You <laughs> at one point he said, he uses the, the, the phrase shebang, so...
0: There you go. Um, it's in there somewhere. I saw Cold Pursuit over the weekend with my daughter on the recommendation of a bunch of people on Twitter. I regret it. Um, not because I hated the movie. I didn't hate the movie. There were parts of it I actually kind of liked, and I thought it was much more interesting than I expected. But it was uh, not the kind of movie I wanted to see with my 16-year-old daughter. And... <laughs> Um, and more importantly, it was not the kind of movie she wanted to see with me. So there's that, uh, anything else that we need to, uh, You could have
2: seen, uh, A Dog's Way Home.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. Both, both my daughter and I share the same problem that we hate to see animals in distressing situations. In oh, movies. they'll
2: be fine. <laughs> no, the, humans die in movies more than animals do these days. Well, yeah, no,
0: we check the website. Does the dog die? I think it's called Guy dot com or something like. Oh, that. really?
2: That exists. Yeah, yeah, no,
0: it's a real website. Because like, uh, if you see in the trailer some beautiful yellow lab, when the you know you're just like, I can't go see that movie if that dog dies. And there are millions of people like me. <laughs> and it became a big thing when that terrible movie with Idris Elba, um, where it was basically The Edge redone badly, where they're lost in the mountains, him and some pretty woman and uh and they had a yellow lab with them and like people like literally wouldn't go see the movie unless they knew first that the dog didn't die and i'm 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 one of those guys but um it's like my daughter loves horror movies i hate horror movies she loves all that stuff and uh but she will not go see pet cemetery (laughs) like we we saw the trailer this weekend and my daughter was like yeah i don't need to see a whole bunch of dead animals uh coming back to life and all and she's like nope not for me so,
2: well, she's not getting invited to my Halloween party.
0: Um Is Pet Cemetery high on your list?
2: No, I was implying that animals are gonna come back to life at my Halloween party.
0: Oh I that went right over my head. I apologize. Well, um now you're not getting invited either. <laughs> so in somewhat exciting news, I lost or I thought I had lost on the last National Rue cruise how many months ago?
2: I don't remember. Was it in November?
0: Something like that, yeah. So Uh, That was where we did a podcast with – that was the last time we did a podcast with Charlie Cook is we used this portable podcast doohickey to record it and we got the audio off of it um, because Charlie, you know, uh, used blood magic or whatever and got it off. And and then he taught me how to use it and I was never sure if I used it correctly, but I recorded a night owl session with me and Rob Long on it and then – I was convinced that the TSA stole it or something happened because I could not find it when I unpacked. And I just found it over the weekend at the bottom of my luggage closet. still not clear how it got there. So I'm going to defer to Jack about whether it is podcast worthy in terms of audio or in jocularity. And um, because we're trying to um, stock up on some evergreen ones as well because I'm going to be going away in March. And uh, so it may be a podcast soon. It may not be. I don't know. I mean, I, I just don't know. It could be interesting. Uh, Jack, do we have anything else that we need to talk about?
2: Uh, well, we can talk about how some people on the internet apparently hate me.
0: One person, yeah. So um, one, just one person. Only, uh, and I'm sure. And to be fair, I'm sure it's more than just one. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Um, he sp- he speaks for many.
0: Uh, but there was a, uh, you know, I go through the most recent iTunes reviews for this podcast. And, uh, and it's a lot of five star reviews, which I'm very grateful for. And there was one four star review that said all these great things about the podcast, but then rained scorn and contempt on one Jack Butler from, uh, uh, from what I thought was sort of an unfair place. And, uh, nor- for me, it was a welcome change because usually I hear the opposite. I hear how oh, we need more Jack Butler and we need more geeky sci-fi stuff. And, you Know, give the robot free reign and all this kind of stuff. So, but it was still, I thought it was, it was, it was was gratuitous and unfair to you. So,
2: I was called quote unquote dippy, which I've never been called before. Been called many things, but I've been called dippy many, many, many times. Did Um, you write the review?
0: I did not write the review. Did
2: you, did you write the op ed? Remember that? Does anyone remember the, the, remember the anonymous op ed from like. Twelve thousand news cycles ago.
0: Oh, in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No I How could I have written such a thing? <laughs> um, I was just
2: trying to find other anonymous things I could accuse you of having done.
0: Um, oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention with Charlie Cook is I have Compromot on him. Uh,
2: well, keep it on the down low. Uh, the point of compromise, if you. Do? Well,
0: it's it's a purely visual, in the sense that uh, we were uh, we were supposed to have a phone conversation about you know. Various palace intrigue at National Review a few months ago. And he accidentally FaceTimed me instead of phoned me. And so he had this ridiculous headband on that made him look like, not that there's anything wrong with that, but an alternative lifestyle yoga instructor or something. It was very strange. And I immediately. Before he could un, you know, take it off his head or turn off the phone or hang up or anything, I immediately did a screen capture of it. So I have that. And maybe we'll release it in the show notes if, if we get um, enough good reviews of this podcast.
2: <laughs> you know what he probably looked like uh, or in that picture? He probably looked like a young Chuck Norris from, those, uh, from like that movie that he was in with Bruce Lee. Because I think right now they look – that, that age Chuck Norris looks a lot like he does right now.
0: Yeah, that's not the first thing that came to my mind when I saw him. <laughs> um, but and I think uh, in that
2: movie he even wears a headband. Uh, I think it's Return of the Dragon. They yeah, all have of the Dragon in the title, so I get them mixed up.
0: But his, but Chuck Norris's hair doesn't come down like a giant weeping willow around. No,
2: no, back then it did. Uh, back then in the seventies, he had long hair.
0: I will show you the picture, and <sighs> you will tell me whether or not you think, oh my gosh, a young Chuck Norris or not, because <laughs> I'm I'm skeptical. Um. All right. So anyway, uh, we're gonna do some more interesting, weird podcasts in the near future. Please keep the reviews coming. Please keep spreading the word. Thank you to everybody who voted for my episode with uh, Russ Roberts, and uh, keep hope alive. And until uh, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Remnant.
2: No, you won't, us